Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the Saga of World War II. This episode is another appendix in which I cover topics that don't necessarily flow through the normal episode structure. This particular appendix is an interview with author and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eric Lichtblau about his book Return to the Reich, a Holocaust refugee's secret mission to defeat the Nazis. Return to the Reich is a thrilling read that oftentimes feels more like a Tom Clancy novel than a historical narrative. It documents the mission undertaken by one Freddie Meyer, a Jewish-German refugee to the United States who enlisted in the army to fight the Nazis. One reason I like doing these episodes is because I feel it allows me to include more information that otherwise wouldn't have gotten into the show. I speak to it a little bit in the interview, and I know I've mentioned in the past, but one of my biggest motivating factors is to introduce listeners to aspects of the war that they had never been exposed to before, and may not have been exposed to otherwise. I'm always astounded that even though I feel I'm fairly well read on the subject, that there are always so many stories I've never heard of before. This is one of them. The war was so large and so all-encompassing that there were just so many unique experiences across, across the globe. I'd also like to apologize ahead of time for some audio artifacts in the recording. There are some places where the sound quality dropped off for whatever reason, but I did my best to clean it up and cut it out. However, in some places that would have meant removing important parts of the conversation, so I had to leave it in and just tried to work around it. I also hope no one minds that this episode is long, even by appendix standards. Before beginning the interview, though, there's one last thing I want to say. I want to recommend a new historical podcast called Stories of the Second World War. Every episode features engaging discussions with military historians and leading experts as they provide insight into the many facets of the greatest conflict in human history. Episodes about Winston Churchill featuring acclaimed Churchill biographer Andrew Roberts, Big Week, the largest air battle of World War II with BBC broadcaster James Holland, and many more fascinating conversations can be heard on stories of the Second World War. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. If you enjoy these episodes in which I conduct interviews, this show is pretty much just that, so I highly recommend it. Alright, let's begin Appendix D, Return to the Reich, an interview with Eric Lichtblau. Alright Eric, uh, thanks for being on the show. To get started, I, I mean, I found the book fascinating, and um, at times it really reads, it was hard for me to believe I was reading a non-fiction story, it really feels like I don't mean fiction in terms that it's unbelievable. It feels like fiction in the sense that, especially once he enters into Nazi-occupied territory, just the the steps that um, that Freddie takes to to evade capture to try and further his cause are just are astounding to me. Yeah, no, me me too. As I was writing it, yeah, there are so many pivots, and um, you know, if it wasn't also well-documented in, in military archives and, and elsewhere, you, you would find it impossible to believe um, what, what one man was, was capable of doing with a little bit of help here and there from, from two other guys on the ground and, and a bunch of OSS uh, supervisors in Italy. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess before we, we get too much further into uh, the actual mission uh, inside uh, um, Nazi-controlled Austria. Uh, could you give uh, some background on who Freddie Meyer was and how it was that he found himself in the service of the OSS, you know, deep behind enemy lines in, in uh, Nazi-occupied Austria in 1945? 
Sure. Uh, Freddie was a German-Jewish refugee to the United States who uh, was born in, in the city of Freiburg uh, in uh, the Baden region of, of uh, Germany in the southwest and uh, grew up there a, a, um, a pretty happy childhood uh, until 1933 when, um, when Hitler and the, the Nazi party took over. And even then... His father, Freddie was uh, about 12 years old then, his father was very reluctant to even think about leaving Germany. His father was, was firmly entrenched there. Um, Freddie's grandfather had started a business um, in the late 1800s in, in Freiburg, a hardware business. They had founded um, a, a synagogue, the first in that region in centuries. Uh, this was, it's easy to, for us to forget, but the period in the late 1800s and early 1900s was um, really a golden age for for Jews in Germany. Uh, you had Jews at the top of their fields, not only in, in science with someone like Albert Einstein, but in business, in, in literature, in theater, uh, in medicine, and a whole range of other areas. Uh, and is not only that, but his father was um, uh, a decorated World War One veteran uh, who had won uh, an Iron Cross, a, a very coveted award for his valor in France in World War One. And um, e even though the Nazis' policies, especially under the Nuremberg laws and later, were making it increasingly um, difficult and really toxic for someone like him. Yeah, uh, you know, Freddie's mother was pleading with his father to uh, to try and flee Germany, as others were doing. And for a number of years, um, his father's name was Heinrich, would, wouldn't consider doing that. Finally, just in, in 1938, uh, months before Kristallnacht, the, the night of broken glass, when things really started turning increasingly violent, uh, his father did um, agree to uh, to try and get out. At that point, that was no easy thing. Uh, they were among the lucky ones who got visas to the United States during a window when that was open. Of course, there had been um, uh, many tens of thousands who were denied uh, entry to the United States and also denied entry to, the, to uh, Palestine by the British. Uh, and in 19, late 1937, early 1938, there was a window that opened up when um, an increased number, still, still only a tiny fraction of the, the minorities who were persecuted by the Nazis, but, but a spike uh, in approvals came through, and Freddie made it to, um, to Brooklyn with his family uh, in 1938. And um, for the next three years, until Pearl Harbor, was was working mainly as a as a mechanic and and with cars, painting cars, fixing cars. Uh, and when um, Pearl Harbor occurred, he was one of the first down at his recruiting station uh, in in uh, New York, but was turned away, ironically, because he was considered an enemy alien, uh, since he was of German origin, it didn't matter that he was Jewish or not, uh, the United States um, military and the government 
um, initially regarded him and other Germans as a potential national security threat, didn't take into account whether they were persecuted German Jews or just German through and through, uh, and he was denied entry as an enemy alien in the military. And it wasn't until a number of months later he actually took his brother's spot, his older brother's spot in the military, and uh, was finally able to, to join the military in, 19, in 1942. But even then, um, it was a somewhat frustrating experience in the Army for Freddie because he kicked around training bases all around the United States, uh, in, in Alabama, um, in Arizona, in uh, the desert training ground there, um, without any clear future, clear assignment, or, or clear hopes of getting back to Europe, which is what he really wanted to, to confront, to fight the Nazis who had you know, really taken away um, his father's livelihood and his, his family's future, as far as he saw. Uh, and it wasn't until um, a, a war games uh, training exercise that he finally got his chance. Uh, Freddie was was a brash young soldier who didn't really like to follow the rules. He was the type whose um, whose beard was never shaved closely enough, whose shoes were never shined quite brightly enough, uh, would get KP duty on a fairly regular basis for speaking out of school or not being on time. And there was a war games exercise where he flouted the rules by outflanking uh, the, the enemy in the scenario and capturing the uh, commanding general uh, who wasn't even part of the exercise and uh, was quite startled to see this young uh, uh, sergeant, a T5, uh, telling him he was, um, he was being captured uh, in this war game scenario since he, he, he didn't even realize he was part of it. And uh, was called in the next day by the same general expecting a, a tongue lashing. And instead, uh, he was asked about his background, uh, whether he spoke German, of course, he said he did. He speak French? Yes, he spoke some French. And the general was impressed by sort of his moxie and, and um, you know, almost daredevil attitude and uh, asked Freddie if he wanted out of the infantry, which he badly did at that point because he was so frustrated to still be in the United States at that point rather than Europe, and said, well, how would you like to join OSS and get out of the infantry? And Freddie was was thrilled by the opportunity uh, and he just had one question what the hell is OSS uh, and he soon learned as he was transferred to yet another training station in, in uh, Bethesda Maryland um, not far from where I happen to live uh, at a converted country club that OSS was uh, this um, spy service created almost overnight um, by uh, General William Donovan, who was then, then a colonel but later general, uh, in the interests of trying to get the U.S. some semblance of an intelligence and surveillance uh, operation along the lines of, of, of Britain's MI6, and uh, the U.S. Was, was woefully behind in that area. So Donovan and his people were training um, saboteurs and, and uh, code breakers and a whole litany of other um, uh, spy craft in 
Bethesda, Maryland, at this converted country club, which they they quickly really blew to smithereens with artillery fire, um, you know, on, on the back nine golf course and hand grenades in the in the bunkers. And um, Freddie was one of the uh, trainees there, along with another man who would become part of what became the Austrian mission. His name was Hans Winberg, who was also a, uh, a European Jew who had escaped the Nazis from the Netherlands and also coincidentally ended up in Brooklyn, although he and Freddie never knew each other, never met before landing up in, landing in Maryland for OSS. Yeah, it's uh, funny that you mentioned that. I mean, I'd never heard of the OSS training ground in, um, in Bethesda either, but uh, it's hard to imagine, you know, demolitions training and airborne parachutist training going on in uh in that in that area yeah yeah this this has been kind of the 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 tony country club for you know washington elites for for senators and and generals and uh uh elite business people for oh 20 25 years at that point and they were having some financial troubles and it was sort of a win-win because donovan needed someplace to train his men and the club uh, could use the money for those two years that they got from leasing it out to the government to get back on its feet. And in fact, the government um, did so much damage uh, to the place, including the new back nine that they had just built, that they had to pay them an extra $400,000 or so um, to replace all the uh, the damage done to the clubhouse and the, and the golf course and everyplace else. Yeah, I'm sure they weren't expecting it to get used uh, for a particular. No, I don't think that was part of the lease arrangement. <laughs> so backing up a little bit, uh, I I think uh, early in the book you describe uh, uh, Freddie's early early life in Germany, and I think it's kind of remarkable how you know he describes his early life in the in the 1920s and early 1930s as just being. His family were actually pretty patriotic Germans, and you know it was just like in, in modern Jewish Americans, you don't think of as being any less American. But in the course of just a few short years, you really get the sense of how much things changed uh, for him and his family. Absolutely, yeah, and yeah. He, he, I think, thought of himself as German first. He was not terribly religious. He, he was bar mitzvahed uh, in, in the Jewish tradition, but um, it wasn't any deep religious connection. You know, he was very interested in, in cars, which were then becoming popular in Germany and, and elsewhere around the world, interested in girls, not much of a student by his own admission. Um, and they lived a pretty, a pretty good middle-class life. His father had a successful hardware store that they ran um, from the back of their house. He had employees. Uh, he had, he um, you know, was known as the guy in town who would uh, sell on credit to, to non-Jews in town um, if they needed tin or metals uh, of, of one sort or another. Um, and they, they had a pretty comfortable life. Uh, and that all began to, to crumble away um, with the rise of Hitler and the Nazis, and um, you know, he, he even was um, was thrown out of school along with a number of the other Jews who were in an assimilated school with, with both Jews and non-Jews. 
because um, Jews were, there was a, a, a quota on the number of Jews you could have in a school under, um, under some of the draconian restrictions from the Nazis. So um, that was the end of his, uh, his days as a student. Uh, his father could no longer employ non-Jews in his business. Um, he could no longer get certain supplies. Uh, you know, you could really feel the, 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 the clamp tightening around them, but his, his father was determined to try and stick it out for as long as he could because he thought that even, even though the restrictions were getting more and more severe and, and the outright discrimination and persecution was more and more obvious that they wouldn't come after him personally because he, he had that iron cross. He was a World War I um, uh, hero, really, who, who had uh, been honored for his valor uh, in France. And he and other veterans had even gotten a letter from Berlin um, signed by uh, by Hitler himself, uh, saying honoring their service, uh, um, not uh, not long after Hitler's rise, honoring their service as Jews in World War One, um, and intimating that they would somehow be protected. Um, so his father really held on to that hope uh, until he just couldn't hold out any longer. Right, and I mean, it seems like they they really kind of made it over at the last minute and. But then we're able to more or less, um, it seems, uh, acclimate into American society once they arrived in Brooklyn. And um, Freddie seemed like he, he had a somewhat successful uh, civilian career before before uh, choosing to enlist. Yeah, he, he was a very, very mechanical guy, always loved cars, when, even in Germany. He um, was a, an apprentice at a, at a car shop, at a car shop there. Um, before he left for America, he made sure to get a letter of recommendation from his from his boss, and and in uh, and in New York, um, you know, in the booming car industry in the late 1930s, he went from job to job as a as a mechanic and and sort of all-purpose fixer for cars, even painting cars when when he needed to, and he would say that you know it was such a booming time for people in new cars that uh, he felt very um, strongly that he should be paid a fair rate and if they if one shop wasn't willing to pay him the going rate he would quit and find another job the next day and he was able to do that uh, for for several years just going from one shop to the to the next um, he, not not being uh, formally trained at any high level, but um, he had some training, and he was just always very, very mechanically inclined from uh, from a young age, and really put that to use, uh, both working on cars and then in the military uh, in an OSS. You know, was able to to, to jumpstart jeeps even when he wasn't necessarily authorized to to, to do that, uh, and and. Uh, you know, fixed gun jams and uh, very, just very uh, had a real savvy uh, way when it came to mechanics and, and getting things done, if you will. Right. I think through the narrative, it becomes apparent that he had this ability, even not just uh, being mechanically inclined, but just an ability to sort of grasp or understand things very quickly. Um, yes. So I think we've sort of 
come to the point in the narrative where so Freddy is uh been enrolled in the OSS, the uh, Office of Strategic Services. Um, but uh, before we kind of go to the next point in the, the story, um, would you mind giving us a little uh, background on, on your uh, what your professional background is and then um, how you came across this story and what made you want to write about it? Sure. Uh, I've been a journalist for oh, over 30 years now, uh, writing for the work for the New York Times uh, in, or in the Washington Bureau for 15 years uh, and was at the Los Angeles Times before that for 15 years. And uh, this is my third book. My first book, uh, Bush's Law, came out in 2008. It was about the aftermath of, of 9-11. And my second book, The, the Nazis Next Door, came out in 2014. That one was about the Nazis who, uh, thousands of Nazis who got into America after the war. And this is my third book, which was sort of an offshoot of the Nazis Next Door. It came about really by accident. I, I was meeting with um, a source who had been very valuable in my, in my last book, The Nazis Next Door. Uh, Eli Rosenbaum was his name, who had uh, who, who was and still is um, at the Justice Department investigating war crimes, including Nazi war criminals who made it into the United States. And I remember uh, I had read on my way to meet him an obituary that ran in the paper that morning uh, of a uh, an elderly European man who had um, saved countless Jews during the Holocaust, uh, a, a, a Schindler's List type figure, but without the, the renown or, or the name recognition. And I was embarrassed to admit to Eli that I had never heard of this person, even though I had just written a book about the Holocaust and, and, and Nazis. And I said to Eli, tell me someone who's still alive today who I, I'm going to wish I had met before they die. I don't want to read their obituary in the paper and think, I wish I had known that person, because these heroes uh, were dying off and still are literally every day. And he immediately mentioned Fred Mayer, uh, who happened to live not far from Washington. Um, we were meeting in West Virginia, about two hours drive away. And there was an effort to um, get a Congressional Medal of Honor for Fred 70-plus years after the war. There was a, a group of Holocaust survivors who were pushing through his local senator in West Virginia, Jay Rockefeller, to get him that recognition. Um, it, it didn't happen. It still hasn't happened now, although I, I for one, think it should. Uh, and Eli told me briefly um, of... Uh, Fred's path from Germany to Brooklyn and uh, and the mission in Austria that he pulled off. Uh, and I went out some months later to um, to see Fred, and we spent really this memorable um, afternoon together, uh, most of the day really. And uh, he recreated for me in, in all this great detail um, his life, not only in Germany, but, but then, of course, in, in going back into to Europe and into Austria as part of this mission. And I was really amazed by both his physical and 
mental uh, acumen. Uh, he, he was living by himself in West Virginia. Uh, he was still driving a car and delivering meals on wheels for, for other elderly people, younger elderly people. He was 94 years old at this time. Uh, and he was shoveling his own driveway. He would chop wood uh, at his place. And he still remembered all the names and, and the names of tiny towns in Austria where um, events in his mission took place uh, in, in the Tyrolean region in and around Innsbruck. Um, a lot of it was in a tiny town called Oberperfus, and he, he was just spitting out the names of these towns and dates. Uh, and I remember saying to him that, that I, I was amazed that a, um, a little Jewish guy like him, he was about five foot six, uh, could live undercover for almost two months, passing himself off as a Nazi officer for, uh, for that long um, before being exposed. And I remember he, he smiled and he sort of ever so gently corrected me and said, well, I was a, I was a Nazi. I won't try and do my Freddie impersonation, uh, not totally at least. Uh, but um, he said I, he was a Nazi for about a month of that time, um, literally wearing the, off, the uniform of a Nazi officer, a Nazi lieutenant, a Ludnat. Um, but then at the end, he gave up that disguise and became a French um, POW, an electrician in a Messerschmitt Nazi uh, airplane factory. And he told me, I remember, I remember this very well, um, he kept the same name, Fred, Frederick Mayer, um, and he just put a French pronunciation on it as an electrician, and he became Frédéric Mayer. Uh, and he laughed as he said that. And, um, you know, we just went over all of this with me, including his eventual capture, and not only capture, but torture by the Nazis, and, and showed me um, how they waterboarded him before we, anyone even used the term waterboarding and strapped him up to the ceiling on, on these poles and poured water down his mouth and his nostrils and, and whipped him and beat him uh, and um, put a gun in his mouth and, and knocked six of his teeth out with a roundhouse punch. And, uh, you know, it was quite gripping to hear him talking about this 70 years later. Uh, and we, uh, I, I left that day. He, w he was a bit um, uh, ambivalent about having me write about him. I thought I wanted to either write about him maybe for the New York Times, where I, I was still a reporter at that point, or, or maybe for a book. He said, well, you know, there have been some things done over the years. There have been books back in the 1970s and more recently uh, about OSS missions like his, including his. Um, and there had been a Canadian documentary uh, more recently. Um, yeah, you know, sort of what's what's the point? What's, what's one more story? Um, and he really wasn't looking for any recognition, but... Um, he said, please come back out anytime. And I figured I'd be back out there very soon. But then unfortunately, two months later, he, uh, he passed away. And so instead, I, I wrote about his story more quickly than I anticipated. I ended up writing his obituary for the Times 
in April of 2016 um, when he died at the age of 94. But it was a story that um, was so compelling in my mind and, and, you know, unknown to so many generations of people here in the United States that I thought it deserved a fuller treatment than you could give it in 700, 800 words in a newspaper. And, um, you know, I immediately began thinking about the possibility of, of doing a book because not only because the story itself and, you know, the espionage mission was, was so, so compelling, but also because I thought the, the refugee experience um, was really important and resonated today uh, with, with what's been going on in our country with the, the whole debate over, over refugees um, and, and immigrants in general. Um, I think the contributions of, of people like Fred Mayer and his partner Hans Vinberg during World War II and other refugees since then, you know, have, have really been overshadowed um, and are unknown to so many Americans. Right, and I definitely agree. Um, it's, it's a great work just in terms, and a great story in terms of uh, everything that happens, and it's like reading, it's, it's like Indiana Jones or something, but at the same time, you have to read it as someone who is alive today in 2019, and um, I think the, the very last words of the book, I think, are, uh, are particularly uh, compelling and really drive home the point. Um, and I'm certainly envious that you, you were able to interview him and at least speak with him once uh, before he passed away. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I wish I had more time, but I'm certainly grateful for, for that day that I, that I had and was able to take a picture of him posing in front of his the medals that he did receive and that we used in the book. So I, I was, um, was very glad to be able to do that. So you've actually alluded to um, some of the events that transpired after, after he got into the OSS and his train up and everything. But uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, kind of backtrack a little bit back to that. Um, he's arrived in, in Maryland. He's going through his OSS training, and that's when he, he meets sort of the, the co-star of the book in, uh, in Hans, the, uh, the Dutch immigrant. Right, right. Um, yeah, Hans had come over from the Netherlands with his twin brother, uh, in 1939, uh, not long after Freddie made it from Germany, uh, also ending up in, in Brooklyn. Uh, but his immigration was, um, was significantly different in a way because uh, his family stayed behind um, with the intention of coming over later. Uh, his, but his parents and his younger brother remained uh, in the Netherlands. They lived out, outside Amsterdam. Uh, and, um, his father very early on after the, the, the rise of Hitler in 1933 had begun to fear the consequences for all of Europe, um, almost the, the polar opposite of Freddie's father and his, his experience where Freddie's father was really just holding on to hope that they could survive this, um, in, in the Netherlands. Hans's father, his name is Leo, uh, began warning his neighbors, began trying to, to rile up political activism against local candidates who seemed to be aligned with the Nazis in, in, in Germany, uh, 500 miles away. 
um, you know, beginning in the in 1934, really, almost from the start, and uh, trying to plan an escape route, and finally got uh, visas for his twin sons, who were 16 at the time that they left, and sent them off. There was a big party um, at their home. Um, another uh, side of the family was also has, had also arranged to flee to to London um, and got out that same day. So they had a party uh, that they actually filmed um, with the, the twin boys showing maps of America. You would think it, they wanted it to be really a celebration, not so much a, a, a downcast event. Um, and and Leo was telling the boys that. The rest of the family would make it over as soon as he could arrange visas, as soon as they could arrange the financial um, situation, which was which was a serious impediment. He had a business that he, that uh, that he was running and had to do something about. They they made uh, a very very successful business fixing um, tires, flat tires. Uh, he he had um, he and his um, and. Hans's grandfather before him had invented a, a product which still exists today in, in bicycle crazy uh, the Netherlands to um, to fix flat tires and he had a whole factory doing that so there were numerous complications that prevented him from leaving at that time um, but he would be over following them to America as soon as he could he promised them um, so they got over to Brooklyn living with a family that that his father barely knew. He had just arranged, he sent over uh, the equivalent of about $3,500, you know, a a large amount of money in those days in 1938, 39, uh, to a business associate who he barely knew who lived in in New York and had agreed to take them um, because he was so fearful of what the Nazis might do. And his... Uh, friends and relatives, Leo's friends and relatives, you know, really thought this was irrational and an overreaction. You're sending, you know, 16-year-old twins to to what they said was the land of the cowboys and Indians. Um, And the Nazis were really someone else's problem. They were Germany's problem. Um, It wouldn't be until 1940 uh, that the Nazis invaded, um, invaded the Netherlands. Of course, by then, they were all of Europe's problem. Um, but he really saw the writing on the wall before other people, and he wrote them these long um, typewritten letters um, that the family shared with me uh, both before and after the Nazis' invasion, and um, it was sort of this this jarring mix of just the daily routine stuff. You know, he got a parking ticket that he was fighting uh, you know, a shipment had been delayed to the warehouse, and you know Hitler has given another speech threatening threatening Europe. Uh, it was this mix of very mundane things and things of huge global consequence. Uh, he talked about Neville Chamberlain and how silly he was in one letter. Uh, he talked about Winston Churchill. Uh, and he, he talked about neighbors down the street who still thought that Herr Hitler was a great guy. You know, he wrote, would write that with an exclamation point. And then after the invasion, he talked about, obviously, the impact on, on everyone in the Netherlands, 
um, in terms of rationing and um, how the, the Nazis appointed um, mayors in all the local districts to control things, but they had it relatively good compared to people in France. There wasn't quite as much military control, and so he tried to put the best spin on it he could. And so there were these, these constant updates um, from him to the boys in Brooklyn. Uh, but not long after Hans joined the military, also uh, around the same time as Freddie in, in 1942, those letters simply stopped. Um, you know, his father had been uh, telling him for a while that they were going to come, and it became more and more difficult. And uh, in the later letters, there really were no, at least short-term, hopes of escaping. And then by the time uh, Hans got to, um, got to Maryland with OSS, those letters had simply stopped. And um, he did not hear from them again. Right. And uh, you kind of, um, you hold out hope throughout the narrative that he's going to, get good news at the end but um you kind of in the back of your mind that uh exactly yeah he 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 held out hope but it wasn't um it wasn't a very optimistic scenario and um as he feared he found out very soon after the war that uh that they had not made it right and um actually so thanks for providing some background on hans and actually so something that one of my goals for the show overall is to kind of provide not only the broadest scope I can and incorporate as many stories as I can. It's um, obviously I try to provide the the overall political and military course of the war, but also just to you know someone who grew up in the United States and had in a very very uh, American centric uh, education about the war as, as a child and in high school. Um, there's so much that happened that people aren't generally necessarily aware of um and stories like this of like of two young one dutch and one german jewish immigrants from coming to the united states and joining the war and having these very unique perspectives and and um origin stories that uh you know when you typically if you ask an american you know what they think of the war what the average experience of the war was that's that's not something they would say so i really appreciate these stories coming to the fore yeah, I, I'd like to think that that's really the, the power of the book is that, that the refugee experience. You know, I didn't want this to be another, you know, Jason Bourne or James Bond story. The the espionage element is is great and fascinating and all that, but I I think it's how they got to that place that really, you know, makes it I hope memorable. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I definitely think so. Um especially i mean there are some very exciting things and, and we can speak to those as well that take place but uh you know that those it's difficult to get uh especially as you know um someone who doesn't really speak german very well you know i took a few years in high school it's hard to get uh first-hand perspectives from outside an american point of view or a non-english speaking point of view so anyone outside you know the the uh, English-speaking allies, so that that point of view from inside Germany during the Nazification process, or that point of view from inside Netherlands um, prior to to the invasion, but as the threat of 
of Nazism was growing, or even later in the book when when you get to uh, when they're on the ground in uh, Austria in the last months of the war, sort of the 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 growing tension or, or split in the society that was taking place as people were starting to realize that the Nazis are going to lose. Right, right, right. Well, they finally, Hans and, and Freddie finally made it out of the United States, at least, 44, for destinations unknown. They, um, they went on a, a naval carrier to, to, they ended up in, in Africa, uh, the Horn of Africa, um, in, in Algiers, and were doing more training there with really vague, uh, a vague sense that maybe they would be sent into France at that point. Um, the United States was, of course, secretly preparing. They didn't know it, but for what would become the Normandy invasion. Um, and they got there just before, really, they got to Algiers, just before Normandy. And there was some hope that they were going to be parachuted into France. Uh, and in fact, they even got uh, to the runway for uh, what was supposed to be um, a, a flight to parachute into uh, an area where they could be um, greeted and helped by French resistance fighters uh, in France. And that was called off literally at the last minute um, as they were waiting to board um, because apparently there had been some dispute between the French resistance and the, the U.S. intelligence officers and there were there were, were reports that the, the French thought the Americans were assholes. <laughs> that was unconfirmed, but all they knew that was that that the mission was scuttled at the last minute. So they were they spent a lot of time really just just biding their time. The, the hurry up and wait, you know, military ethos. Uh, training missions. They 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 um, you know sort of got involved in in hijinks from time to time, and you know stealing a jeep or or. You know, going to in into town in in um, Algiers and elsewhere. They were sent to Italy then, uh, still with an unspecified mission, and you know, sort of causing causing trouble, requisitioning food and entertainment, uh, even though they weren't authorized to do that. They're really um, frustrated by their lack of an assignment. And at one point, Freddie led sort of a mini revolt where they went off of their base without without permission and hitchhiked about 20 miles up the road um to the uh to the naples area in italy from where they were uh freddie and hans and three other um oss uh soldiers also all european jewish refugees so five in all with the same similar background and said, look, we're, we're wasting our time here. You know, we, we came here because we want to we wanna be able to fight the Nazis. Um, and, and we all have this background. And, um, you know, this was, was basically uh, a revolt against their existing um, commission, which they, they thought that their, uh, uh, that their base commander was, was wasting their time. And they succeeded to the extent that they got reassigned to another base across Italy um, over uh, over on the, the, the southeastern side. And um, there they finally did get uh, a mission 
Uh, Eisenhower at that point had signed new authorizations that gave OSS an expanded ability to perform essentially commando missions into parts of Austria and Germany um, as the fighting there intensified. And uh, Freddie and Hans eventually got a, uh, a, a, an assignment to go into Austria. The, the missing piece for that assignment, um, as OSS was um, doing in, in a number of these sa- uh, saboteur missions and commando missions, was to find uh, essentially a local tour guide, if you will, um, a Nazi defector who knew the area, who knew the Nazis, who knew the local land, and could be trusted enough to work with them. Now, obviously, that was was no uh, no sure thing by any means. And in a number of these cases, the Nazi defectors who they relied on, you know, turned against them. Um, turned them into the Nazis on the ground, fled outright with the gold currency that they've been using to finance the mission or bribe locals. Uh, in this case, Freddie was the one who helped identify the defector. Um, Freddie went into a Nazi POW camp, partly to polish his German, because he would be going undercover in Austria. He hadn't spoken German um, regularly for uh, or close to seven years at that point, because when his family had come to Brooklyn, um, they essentially made a vow not to speak German, this country that had had cast them aside. Um, Freddie had always known as, been known as Fritz before that, um, but it sounded too German, so he went back to his given name of Fred. And Heinrich, his father, didn't want to be known as Heinrich because it was sounded so German. Uh, so he became Henry. And so Freddie uh, in Italy went into this POW barracks um, undercover, posing as a Nazi POW, um, in part to see whether his German could could sustain him or whether he would stick out like a sore thumb. Um, but also in part to look for possible Nazis who, he came out successfully on both scores because his his German was good enough for him to fake being a Nazi POW for a few days uh, in the POW camp in northern Italy, and he also met with um, a a Nazi officer, uh, an imprisoned Nazi officer by the name of Franz Weber, who had um, surrendered to the Allies, to the Brits actually in Italy. Um, he had uh, um, he had fled his Nazi post and at least claimed to be um, opposed at that point to Hitler and the Nazis and disgusted by what they had done um, in his native land, which was Austria. He was an Austrian who um, who grew up in uh, the area, the, the Tyrolean area um, outside Innsbruck, and. Uh, Freddie, after um, emerging from the POW camp and meeting with his supervisor, who was also a German-Jewish refugee, a guy by the name of Dino Lowenstein, um, they decided that Franz Weber was an excellent candidate to be the third man on this Austrian team uh, and to be their local tour guide because the, the, the plan, as... Um, 
improbable as it as it sounded then and even now uh, was for the three men to parachute down onto a glacier in the Austrian Alps um, at about 13,000 feet and then somehow make their way down to um, to the city of Innsbruck, oh, about 10,000 feet altitude below them, and for Freddie to then infiltrate the, um, the, the, the Nazi party, which had a real stronghold in Austria especially, which was fiercely pro-Nazi, unlike France, where there was a much more significant resistance. Austria was seen as, by the OSS est- estimates, you know, 90% pro-Hitler, if not higher. Uh, the U.S. Was, was really desperate to get intelligence on a couple of critical issues. Um, one was uh, just basic fundamental military logistics uh, about the front in Italy across the other side of the Brenner Pass from Austria and how the Nazis were um, were staffing and replenishing the front with with gasoline, with munitions, um, with manpower, uh, the train lines that were running there. So they had a critical need to understand how and when that was happening. Um, and it, a lot of that was still a mystery to, to the U.S. Yeah. And, and they also, um, even more important, were... Uh, quite worried, even terrified, I would say, of what became known as um, the, the idea of the Alpine Fortress, uh, that U.S. intelligence um, from Eisenhower on down believed Hitler was building in, in that immediate area, um, in and around Innsbruck and Tyrol, uh, and there had been um, any number of intelligence reports um, that eventually even made it out into the, the um, into the media in the United States, um, in the New York Times and elsewhere, uh, about a fiery last stand that Hitler was planning in in the in the Alpine fortress uh, that was being built around this area with. Uh, the, the, the mountains will be trapped with, uh, with um, you, you know, division after division of uh, Wehrmacht soldiers being positioned uh, for a really frightful last stand. Right. I think something sometimes, uh, you know, when we look back at history, we forget that, you know, at the time people didn't know what was going to happen and that the, uh, that, uh, Alpine fortress and or fortress uh, Austria down in the Alps there was something that American leadership was very concerned about and that uh... US forces concentrated more to the more towards Austria um, you know Patton's division uh, was heading towards Berlin and, and Austria uh, for what they they feared could be um, a really momentous battle and, and quite bloody battle there. Now, a lot of this turned out to be more hype than anything, um, partly created by um, 
you know, by Goering himself in, in, in a bit of misinformation to, to get the Allies off track. Um, it, it, this was sort of a half-built, half-baked, if you will, idea that had been started by the, the top Nazi official in, in Austria, a man by the name of Franz Hofer, um, who was a Hitler acolyte from the very earliest days in Austria and a very powerful figure in, in Innsbruck who was accused of being responsible for the deaths of some 30,000 Jews and, and other minorities just in Innsbruck alone. Uh, and he had, he had started to build sort of a shell around, um, around Innsbruck, but it was nowhere near as, as fearsome as the Allies had come to believe. Um, and uh, I sort of liken it to the Iraq WMD scenario, uh, you know, many years before the Iraq War. Um, where it, it became more more myth than reality. Um, but this was part of Freddie's mission, was to understand what the Nazis were doing on the ground. And, and in a couple of situations, he was able to, to show what they weren't doing, um, which in a military setting, obviously, cause can be as important as knowing what the enemy is doing. Definitely. Yeah, so... Um, so they, they, the three of them did uh, ultimately parachute down onto this glacier um, outside Innsbruck. Uh, it took them three tries to get there because of uh, the, the winter storms and, and anti-aircraft artillery on the ground. Uh, they almost didn't make it a third time. The, the pilot of that plane, believe it or not, um, is, is still alive, uh, and I interviewed him several times for the book. Uh, John Billings, uh, he lives in rural Virginia, 96 years old now, and just, just a great guy, still flying a plane, believe it or not. Wow. Um, and, you know, he talked to me at length about uh, his, his dealings with, with Freddie, uh, who in normal, in normal circumstances, he was never supposed to meet the three, uh, three OSS members who were parachuting down. They were only supposed to be known as John Doe. Everyone was, was John Doe. He, they, they couldn't even meet face to face, but because their mission the first time got called off in the air, they had to land in Northern Italy and start over and, and, and were grounded there for several days, he actually did meet them and did get to know Freddie, who just in that short time showed what a sort of what a character and master of disguise he was and pretended to be all sorts of things that he wasn't, uh, as, as, as the pilot learned later. Um, but they, they, they did parachute down, and uh, it's, it's a minor miracle just that they made it down alive um, because they were practically stranded at the top of this glacier when uh, one set of skis didn't arrive. It probably sailed over the Alps to the other side of Italy. Uh, they were supposed to ski down. Now, Hans pretended he knew how to ski. He had never been on skis in his life. Freddie had skied a little bit, but really wasn't much of a skier, and, and their Nazi tour guide, Franz, he, in fact, was an expert alpine skier, which is part of the reason he was recruited. But so they made it down um, with 
Freddie and Hans basically crawling on their bellies. And um, Hans at one point said to Freddie, just just go on without me. You know, he didn't think he, there's no way he was going to make it to civilization. Definitely one of those points in the book where you think to yourself either, uh, you know, it can't get any worse than this or, uh, you know, how is he going to get himself out of this one? But at times it does get, it does get worse. But. And Freddie, not for the last time, was not going to leave Hans behind. And he practically dragged him and they, they finally found a, a hut about, oh, uh, about a thousand feet or so down the mountain that was used as um, a Nazi Alpine patrol but luckily was um, was empty at that time and and from there several days later made it made it down uh, to a tiny town where where they were able to convince uh, with a cover story the, the the local Nazi mayor that they were uh, were all Nazis who had become um, separated from their unit and they and they borrowed a toboggan that they used to uh, um, to get down. Uh, another three or four thousand feet to the next town, and, and um, Hans would say later that was that was the scariest point of the entire mission, uh, even compared to being face to face with Nazis and hiding in attics. Being on that toboggan, going he figured like sixty miles an hour was was the most terrifying of all. Uh, and, and they did they did finally make it down and. Um, the the key really to the success of the mission, other than surviving the mountain, I'd say, was the contact that um, that Franz, the Nazi defector, had in his hometown, which was a, this tiny town of Oberperfis, uh, about ten miles or so outside Innsbruck, uh, where. Um, where where Franz had lived and where he had met some locals who he suspected were not fervently in the Nazis' corner. Now, you obviously couldn't advertise that publicly. The Gestapo was was roaming the town regularly, and and to cross the Gestapo was you, know, you would risk being sent to a concentration camp, as as a number of the locals were. I, I talked to the family of one. Who had a, a toddler um, who was sent for to be euthanized at a camp um, a few hours away after the toddler developed seizures? You know, so there was uh, the Gestapo just just came and claimed the child, and the child was never seen again except when the Gestapo showed up and said, "You can um, you can reclaim the ashes for 40, 40 Deutschmark, I think it was. So you know, these were horrific times and. Um, any anti-Nazi sentiment um, was was um, at your own peril, uh, especially in in Austria, where the Austrians had had greeted Hitler after the Anschluss really with with open arms. Um, this was an extension of Germany in in most ways. Um, but Hans was able to connect them with a man who used to be a mayor there and was, in fact, a, a political resistor covertly. Um, they didn't connect at first. I tell the story in the book of uh, uh, the three of them hiding in a shed, trying to wait for a chance to, to meet this man, and Franz sent Freddy. He thought it would be too dangerous 
to expose himself as, as someone who used to be um, ready to the man's door um, with instructions on exactly what to say and to say that Franz Weber had, had sent him and Freddie got there, and the man answered in his pajamas and was quite startled. It was late at night and had no idea who Franz Weber was, or at least claimed he didn't know who Franz Weber was. This could be a Gestapo trap. He didn't know what it was. And Freddie scurried back to the shed where the other two men were waiting for him. And Franz real, realized that in that town to this day, in fact, I learned there's sort of an odd tradition where your your last name is taken from the name of your property. Um, that the house itself has a name that becomes your family name. So Franz Weber had a different last name um, than than what he had given, and he realized his mistake, and that that the uh, the, the local man uh, wouldn't recognize the name Franz Weber. And when he went back the second time. He did make the connection, and you hate to say, you know, how miraculous it is because there's several turns here where you just can't believe the good fortune, but um, he, he was willing to hide them for the night and um, to regroup and eventually to uh, set them up with others in town who could hide them and could established one of the first critical things was to establish a radio antenna line for Hans, who was the radio man for the operation. He, he had orders to uh, cable back to Italy um, within four days of, um, of their landing, um, or else they would be essentially considered dead. Um, Italy didn't have the manpower to staff these lines 24-7. Um, and, and so that, that was the arrangement was that they needed to make contact as quickly as possible. They were well past that at the point that they made it into Oberperfus. It was, it was seven or eight days later, and Hans was desperate to establish a, a, a radio signal. Um, and he, he did that by uh, disguising, with with the help of the local mayor, uh, disguising the antenna wire in the clothesline that was used to, to hang their laundry. And when he finally did get through to Italy, which had, in fact, given up on them for dead, the command, the, the lieutenant who oversaw this operation was was in a movie in the, the R, uh, was in a movie in, in the barracks and was urgently summoned to uh, the communications tent and got the uh, cable from Freddie, who, in a, in a somewhat joking way, said, we're all fine, love Fred. Um, and there were whoops and cheers like you wouldn't believe that went up at OSS in Italy. Uh, in, they, they were in the, in the town of Bari in Italy. Uh, the OSS had lost several teams, I guess you'd call them, inside uh, occupied territory up to that point. So they had they they lost more men than survived by by my count, um, and uh, there had been a team sent into Yugoslavia 
where um, all 12 of the uh, the commando members um, were immediately captured and executed. There were others in Austria and Germany who were captured soon after and actually sent to concentration camps uh, at Mauthausen, among others. Uh, there was there was one group where the Nazi defector um, established contact, um, somewhat like like Franz did, with people in his hometown. And his own father-in-law turned him in to the Gestapo because his father-in-law was still very much pro-Nazi. So the, the risks were just enormous. There was another um, uh, not long after uh, this mission where uh, the, the, the um, soldier didn't even make it off the airplane. His, uh, um, his cable did not disengage, and he was brutally slammed against the underbelly of, of the plane and, and died that way horrifically. Uh, and there's one scene that I, I think in the, the book that powerful, I think, in my view, where um, before they left for Austria, while they were still in Italy and Bari, uh, one of the supervisors wanted them to know the risks and told them, you know, the that the chances of success were, were, were minimal, perhaps one in a hundred, and told them some of these horror stories of the recent OSS missions that had not gone well and, and wanted to make sure they were still on board and that they understood what they were getting um, themselves into, especially, especially as Jews, not, not just as, as any OSS agents and soldiers, but as Jewish OSS agents and soldiers. And Freddie was, was a bit... Um, a bit repulsed by, by just the mere question whether they were really ready for this. And uh, he said to the, the supervisor, who was a, a Christian gentleman from, from Florida, he said, you know, do, do we know what we're getting into? He said, this is our war. This is our war more than your war. And we want this. Um, and that really gave me chills the first time I, I saw that. Um, that conversation in a document um, because it showed just how determined he was to get back into the Reich and, and to try and do something to help, help stop the Nazis. Right. And it kind of raised the stakes in a way, um, especially after at that point uh, for several chapters, you know, he's uh, well, the two of them really are in training and they're, they're trying to get, into the you know into the war and it sort of takes on this uh i don't know maybe sort of groundhog day feel but then at that you know just before the the real mission begins you get this kind of uh reality check for for what this means to them right right exactly um so they they uh, they finally with the help of franz's contacts in in Oberperfus, are able to establish this this small support network, um, really espionage network, of maybe 10 or 12 people, and most of them, in fact, were women, um, partly because they would come under less suspicion from the Gestapo, you know, for, for obvious reasons, who, who presumed that the women would be less of a threat than the, than the men. Um, and several of them were... Um, had connections to Franz in, in one way or another. Uh, 
One was his own fiance, uh, who he, he who didn't even know whether he was alive or dead at that point. Um, Franz had sort of disappeared. There were rumors that he had um, had defected, that he had surrendered. But there were other rumors that he was dead, uh, and she didn't even know what had happened to him. In fact, when she first saw him, when she was in overpurpose, um, she was furious with him because she thought he had taken such a such a ridiculous risk and a gamble in coming back there, and said she didn't know whether to you know to slap him or to kiss him. Right, he definitely had think, a chance of survival in the POW camp. Then uh, absolutely yes, and I think she she ended up both slapping and kissing him. Um, and and Franz's own sisters, all three he had three sisters who were all in Innsbruck, who were also critical in this. One in particular was a nurse um, at the main hospital, uh, which was used primarily at that point for, for, for military casualties in Innsbruck from both fighting in Italy and Austria. Um, and she was able to help sneak out the uniform um, of a dead Nazi soldier. Uh, and that was the uniform that Freddie ultimately used to pose as as a Nazi lieutenant in Innsbruck on the ground in that Nazi uniform. So this this support network was was critical. Um, there, there was another woman uh, in in town in the town of Oberperfus named Maria um, who like the others had grown to to um, really loathe the Nazis but also had personal motivations because she seemed to have fallen in love with Freddie, who for a time was hiding in her attic and her parents. She was, she was uh, in her late twenties at that point. Um, her parents became worried that their daughter was falling for this American spy hiding in their attic. And at that point they didn't even know he was Jewish, uh, just an American spy. That was bad enough. And they kicked him out. They, they told the ringleader that they would have to find somewhere else for the Americans to stay. But Maria, the daughter, continued to, to help them, uh, to help Freddie, and would do almost anything for him. She acted as a lookout. She passed the paper messages back and forth from Freddie in the city to, to Hans, who was the radio man hiding in, in uh, different attics in town. Um, she would lend Freddie her bicycle so that he could get back and forth between Innsbruck and Oberperfus. She was was really devoted to him. Um, so, you know, the, as remarkable as anything are the roles of uh, these um, these cohorts in Austria who, you know, in the face of, of obvious risks, were willing to help the Americans. Right, and it's, I mean... Seems like he developed a pretty, pretty vast network of uh, uh, associates or, or cutouts, as they're called in the in the book. Um, and it's kind of remarkable that he lasted as long as he did before uh, finally someone was was turned by by the Gestapo. Yeah, yeah. He, you know, his his network did expand as as time went on, and. The more successful he got, he he was willing to take more risks. And my sense is that he he was 
brash by nature. Um, uh, a, a colleague of his said he was born without the fear gene. And the more successful he got, the more almost an air of invincibility he took on. Um, and I guess it's somewhat understandable because um, he had really one coup after another in terms of the intelligence he was able to generate. Um, as, as a, posing as a Nazi lieutenant, I discuss uh, how he was able to um, sneak his way into an officer's club in Innsbruck that was used by um, as, as part of a, a sort of a convalescent home for recuperate, Nazis recuperating from their injuries. Uh, and there in the officer's club, I tell the story of how he um, began overhearing conversations and finally joined a group of Nazis who were drinking more and more heavily as the night went on. And one of them, it turned out, had just gotten back from Berlin. He was an Austrian engineer who told the remarkable story of how he had worked on the refortifications of Hitler's bunker, underground bunker in Berlin, with precise measurements, the precise locations of where in the bunker Hitler slept, of where he would address troops. Um, and Freddie was able to... Um, to write all this down, there were so many details, he, he, he was worried he wouldn't be able to remember them all, uh, but wrote, wrote them all down on paper through Maria, one of his cutouts, got it back to Hans in, uh, in, in the attic in Oberperfus, and then Hans, through Morse code, cabled it back to Italy, where you know, OSS was understandably just overjoyed to receive all this news, it, 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 command, the supervisor was a, a, a bowler described as a ten strike. Um, but it wasn't even his his most successful um, intelligence uh, collection effort. Um, not long after that, he uh, was able to get precise schedules for um, a massive uh, caravan of about eighty rail cars that were headed from a yard outside Innsbruck down through the Brenner Pass to Italy uh, with men and munitions and, and uh, fuel and supplies. Uh, and that allowed the allies on the, uh, on the Italian side in northern Italy to bomb the tra train line. Um, which was of you know un untold help in uh, starving the, the front lines of the Nazis. Um, so that was an, an enormous coup. Uh, and I think that as he built up one success after another, both as I said as as a Nazi officer and then also as a French electrician, um, he was willing to take on even more risk. And and by the end. He was cabling back to Italy saying that he thought he could um, get 500 resistance fighters on his side, uh, send guns and am ammo, and I will take Innsbruck. Uh, and one um, uh, OSS official later said, someone needs to tell him he's not in an Errol Flynn movie. Um, but still, they actually did try, try and arrange a drop for 
uh, for all the weaponry, believe it or not. Yeah, I was kind of uh, blown away by that, that they actually, you know. Yeah, they actually did tie unsuccessfully, and that really was what led to his exposure, um, because one of the... uh, because one of the people he had contacted who he thought was an anti-Nazi um, opponent turned out to be an informant of the Gestapo's. And when this failed drop occurred, it really alerted, it put, it put the Gestapo in the area on high alert and, and there was a roundup of um, every, every suspect they could they could find, including Freddie, the supposed French electrician who had been working in this Messerschmitt factory. And so that led to his capture in, um, in late April, 1945, we are now. Yeah, uh, which, um, definitely leads to what are the, his capture and, and uh, torture at the hands of the Gestapo. Um, yeah, some uh, grueling ch- uh, chapters as they, uh, they try to get information from him and yeah, they they were they they beat the hell out of him. Yeah. I mean, for hours and hours, and it was only when a um, the second ranking Nazi um, in Innsbruck told him to stop because they thought he was more valuable uh, alive than dead that that he that he survived. Otherwise, he probably would have uh, would have bitten the bullet um, right then and there. Uh, and there's a, a, a um, an incredible recounting of that whole uh, episode in the OSS files in the National Archives that I used in my research uh, because the the Nazi, the Gestapo uh, lieutenant who led the beatings and the torturing was was captured soon after the war and confessed to almost everything. Uh, to OSS, and there's uh, an eight or nine page confession where he describes in grisly detail exactly what they what they did to him, and he even says at one point that some of his fellow Gestapo men suspected that Freddie might be a Jew, and uh, the main interrogator said there's there's no way. There's no way he's a Jew. No Jew could withstand that kind of punishment. Um, and Freddie heard about that later, and he took great satisfaction in that. Obviously, as as a Jewish refugee, and being able to withstand the blows from the Nazi interrogators and survive them, uh, and and them thinking that that no Jew could survive that, he he um, he, he he laughed about that later. Yeah, so eventually, you know, he's captured, and then you really do get to a point in the story where it's—I mean, I was sitting there thinking, how the only reason—the only reason I kind of had an idea was what would happen is because you know, obviously, it's well now it's actually getting to be you know April 1945, and I know surrender's coming, and but I'm thinking, you know, if it weren't for that, how how would he even get out of this situation? But he does actually manage to—he doesn't just wait until Germany surrenders; he actually creates a way for himself to be involved in the surrender right right it was really his his final play um he he survived the beating he was sent to a concentration camp for several days um a a smaller one um in the city of of innsbruck 
where the Nazis were sending the VIP prisoners, um, some of them from from Dachau. And uh, he thought that he finally might have um, uh, might have gotten a death sentence at that concentration camp. But then the same uh, number two Nazi who had saved his life a few days earlier gets him out of the concentration camp. Um, uh, the number two, I think, more than anyone else, believed that the end was near for the Nazis at that point. Um, you know, Patton's men were only about 20 miles or so uh, outside Innsbruck and were ready for an, an, an all-out assault on Innsbruck. Soldiers in and around Innsbruck who were, who were waiting for a final battle, and Franz Hofer, the, the number one who I mentioned earlier, um, he had been telling uh, soldiers and, and even civilians uh, in and around Innsbruck and in Tyrol in radio addresses and elsewhere to prepare for a last stand, for a last battle, to, to go down fighting in the name of the Fuhrer, even though it looked like the Reich was on its last legs. Um, and Freddie um, was brought to Seehofer, the, the, the number two, arranged a meeting um, and uh, at Hofer's home, believe it or not. And Freddie um, played that final card, which he had no real authority to play, which was to discuss a deal for Hofer, who, as you can imagine, was facing all sorts of war crimes charges um, after the war, if in fact Germany lost, for everything he had done um, over the last Oh, 10 years at that point in Innsbruck. And Freddie thought he could get him spared um, if he were willing to surrender. And they had a, 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 long, a long heart-to-heart, which Hofer at first um, disregarded. And then as he mulled over and, and saw the right on the wall, he too came to believe that Freddie might be his, um, his savior who could help him escape war crimes charges and he had a change of heart and went back on the radio uh, to tell Innsbruck uh, the people to lay down their arms and there was a, a bloodless a bloodless surrender. Freddie was given a German military escort in a jeep um, 10 miles or so to the north uh, where the U.S. forces were, uh, were stationed and awaiting their orders. And he rides up with uh, a white bedsheet waving from a pole to surrender. Um, and they had no idea that there was an American even inside Innsbruck, much less um, negotiating a surrender. And um, they were able to, to move into town in a matter of hours uh, and... and uh, occupy Innsbruck without a single shot being fired. And Hofer and his men were, were jailed. Um, and uh, Hofer, despite the promises that Freddie had made him, which his supervisors acknowledged he had no authority to make, uh, did face charges, but then quite mysteriously um, escaped some months later and 
lived out his life in Germany without ever being brought to justice, um, which is one of the ironic um, asterisks of all this, in my view. Yeah, I mean, and that's definitely, a. I think uh, the narrative really builds to that moment when, so he's, um, you know, he's escaped from Germany, then, you know, he's got his life in the U.S., joins the army, his training finds his place, in a way, in the OSS, you know, he's in Italy for months, and then, you know, the real adventure begins, you know, jumping into Austria, having to trek through the mountains, getting, finding their hideout and their contacts, establishing the network, masquerading as a Nazi officer, um, getting an in at the uh, at the rail network, uh, then going undercover, I guess you could say, as a, a French laborer in the Messerschmitt factory, getting, getting captured, surviving, you know, the beating of the, of a lifetime and making out of a concentration camp and then finally negotiating negotiating for a surrender from from the nazis going then getting an escort to the american lines finding you know men from i think it was the 103rd infantry division to surrender and then finally he finds his you know his imprisoner in in um, the american uh pow camp or i guess they went prisoners of war and you know, finally meets him then and then you know, I, what does he say to him he's uh he asks him Please, you know, don't go find my family. Don't beat them. And he's, he's right. Just do, do anything you want to me, but don't, but don't hurt my family. And and Freddie Freddie looked at looked at him and said, "What do you think we are, Nazis?" <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought that was just you know, if, I, if this were a movie, if this were Hollywood, you know, that would be that would be the end of the movie right there. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it, it's just at every turn, um, it's just sort of an amazing, amazing story that. I thought people needed to know about and, and um, you know, I, I think people like Freddie Mayer and, and Hans Vinberg and, and so many others like them who lived in anonymity, you know, deserve a bigger place in, in history. Um, so their stories have been told partly before, uh, um, but I, I don't think you can tell them enough times. 